But tonight we're going to talk about the issue of marriage. Marriage. God's design. Marriage. It's a wonderful thing. There's a guy um, who is in charge named Tom Smith. He's in charge of the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago. And he said this uh, a couple years ago. If there was a product that you could offer to the marketplace that would let you live longer, be twice as happy, and have better and more frequent sex, you'd probably earn billions of dollars. And there is such a product. That product is marriage. See what Paul has to say about marriage. From Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 21. I know the NIV, if you have an NIV, cuts 21 off from the rest of the section. But that's really unfortunate because it's the beginning of the section we're going to look at tonight. Verse 21, Paul says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also, sorry, also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this this section of scripture. We pray that you'd help us to understand it, help us to understand um, how marriage is a reflection of your love for your church, for your bride. And help us to be amazed again at your faithfulness, at your compassion, at your mercy, at your love that we don't deserve. And yet you lavish upon us. And we pray that you'd help us to worship you even as we um, sit under the teaching of your word tonight. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Marriage. Marriage. um, Here's what we want to talk about tonight. Marriage exists, first of all, to proclaim the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. This is a fascinating passage. Paul is going through and talking about what seems to be rather ordinary instructions about a basic human institution. And yet, as you get into it, and particularly he sort of gives you this thing, I'm actually talking about Christ and the church, it sort of makes you go back and reread the whole thing. And there's a couple of things that come out. First of all, marriage was God's idea. God's design. Marriage was created to teach us about the love of God. The love of God, if you look actually back in Ephesians chapter 1, you find that God loved his people before the foundation of the world. That means that before he created the world, he loved his people. God did not look at human beings 
figure out what they had decided to do about relating to one another, kind of see that they'd come up with this quaint idea called marriage and say, hey, I think I can use that. No, if you, if you understand this chapter in the context of Ephesians as a whole, the love of God comes first. It's like we sang in one of those hymns, right? Uh, and we, we sang that in Not What My Hands Have Done. We love because he loves us. We live because he lives. We commit to one another in marriage because we were made to commit and to be committed to. So that we would reflect and learn something about the love of God. Marriage exists. Marriage exists, first of all, to proclaim that God is a faithful spouse who makes covenant commitments with his people. Marriage exists to glorify God by being an image of his faithfulness. Marriage is a signpost, if you will, that's teaching us about the love of God. That's what Paul is saying here. Where he says, I'm not talking about man and wife marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church. The most important thing for you to understand, and it's actually sprinkled all through this section. This, is one, this passage is one of the greatest examples of a really important biblical principle, which is this. The Bible never just gives us bare commands. God never just says, do this, don't do that, don't ask me why, just shut up and do what I say. Never says that. When God tells us to do something, it's always rooted in something, about what he, something that he's done or something about his character. And so it is with this passage, right? There's theology, understanding this, who God is and what he's done, woven all through this passage. And then you get to the end and you realize, actually, the whole passage, the whole idea of marriage is there to teach us about Christ and his love for his bride, the church. Marriage is to model God's faithfulness. It's why marriage can be such a glorious thing. It's also why bad marriages or marriages that break up are so grievous. And so damaging. Because marriage was made for a really big purpose. A really big purpose. Uh, Marva Dawn uh, says it this way. I I, I enjoy her, her writing a lot. She's a Lutheran minister. And she says this. The main purpose of marriage is to display for all the world to see the mystery of Christ's fidelity to and his saving work for his bride. You can think of it this way. Marriage is to be a bold proclamation that the gospel, the good news that Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners is true and that it changes the way we live at the most intimate level of our relationships. This whole semester we've been talking about gospel-driven relationships. And that's what we're talking about tonight as well. This, Paul lays it out here. The gospel The idea that Christ lived and died for his bride is to characterize and shape and model what marriage looks like because ultimately marriage is to teach the watching world as well as us who are in the Christian community. Not that I assume that everybody here is tonight. But marriage is to teach both those inside the Christian community and those who are outside the Christian community about who God is and what he's like. That's a huge thing. The way I talk about it sometimes when I do weddings is that marriage is for more than just two. I know that when we do weddings, you know, it's all focused on these two. But I always try to make a point of it when I do weddings, even in the opening prayer, that God would be the beautiful one in our midst that takes our breath away. That all of what we do in these, in these weddings is, is really to focus us on him and his faithfulness. 
and how he's more excited than any groom you've ever met to be united with his bride. God is, Christ is more excited about the second coming than any of his children are because he can't wait to be united with his bride who he died for and who he washed to be spotless and without blemish, right? So this is important for both people inside the Christian community and those outside the Christian community. And marriage is one of the greatest ways that God teaches us about this. Now, remember last week, if you weren't here last week, I talked about singleness. So, you know, here's the hard thing. I told you about this last week. It's hard to talk as positively as the Bible does about singleness and also then turn around and talk as positively as the Bible does about marriage. But both are true. The reality is there are some who are called to singleness and some who are called to marriage. But the more typical calling is the calling to marriage. It's the more typical calling for human beings and for those who call in the name of Christ to be married. And marriage is one of the best ways that God has to teach you about what he's like. Marriage is not a human institution. It's God's idea. It's something that almost all cultures have, not because all cultures have sort of, you know, miraculously discovered the same sort of path that the evolutionary biologists tell us that we must take. Um, It's not just an institution that human beings came up with to protect vulnerable childbearing females at a particular point in their lives. No, it really is much bigger than that. God made us this way to teach us what he's like and to help us to understand that we were made to make commitments and to be committed to. We were created, the Bible says. This was actually the first week of this series, taking you all the way back to the first week. We were created to be in a relationship with God and in a relationship with other people. Covenant relationship. We were made to leave our parents and to cleave to one another and become one flesh. When God looked at Adam in the garden before the fall and sin had entered in the world, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. That's because he created us to be in relationship, imaging even him, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. God is triune, three persons who are perfectly relational beings related to one another. And so he created us to also relate to one another. And marriage is really the, the heart of what that's about. Now, here's what you need to understand. The Bible's teaching on marriage is actually radically countercultural for its day. A lot of people, you know, look at the Bible and they say, oh, you know, we're ready to move on. This is actually the 21st century. We need to get beyond sort of these old-fashioned ideas about marriage. There's all kinds of ideas that were in this section of Scripture that I just read that seem so far-fetched and outdated, and we really need to move on beyond that, right? But what I want you to understand is, first and foremost, the things that Paul is laying down here, uh, and, and he talks about elsewhere in the scriptures about marriage, are actually radically countercultural. I mentioned one of these a few weeks ago when we talked about sex. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, the Apostle Paul, speaking on God's behalf, tells us that not only does the wife's body belong to her husband, but the husband's body belongs to his wife. So right away, God's word comes in and establishes a really different way of thinking about marriage. The idea that marriage is a partnership and that marriage should benefit both the man and the woman. That's what Paul's laying down there. That marriage is not just for the the enjoyment of the husband. Wives are not just for the good of the husband. That this is actually to benefit both of them. 
Therefore, the husband's body belongs to the wife, just as the wife belongs to the husband. Everybody in the first century thought that the wife's body belonged to the husband, and that the purpose of wives was basically so that the husband could, you know, have his line continued if she would produce an heir, right? And so, for Paul to come in and say, no, 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 the wife has ownership over her husband's body, that she's an equal partner in this. And again, it's, you know, you can talk about what is, well, why does he say then submit, you know, wives submit to your husbands? But at first he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But again, that's, that's uh, two weeks from now. We'll talk more in detail about that. But that's the first point, that there's this partnership. Another way of, of getting at this um, is the way the Bible uses words like describing the wife as a helper. Now, again, I said, like some people, I think in our modern context, we think of that word helper in a de- as a demeaning word. We think of it as a subservient word. That's not what that word means in the Hebrew. Um, the word helper that's used of Eve in the creation story is a word that is mostly used about God himself. God himself is the one that that word is mostly used about. So to call Eve a helper is to say something really huge. It's to take a word that is almost exclusively reserved for God himself and say that this is the role that, that women have been dignified uh, to play, a helper. It's, it's not a subservient word at all. There's another place that I want you to understand. In Proverbs 2.17, Now it talks about a wife and it describes uh, the husband as the partner of her youth. Now, actually, the context is talking about an adulterous woman who has forsaken the partner of her youth. But even in that, you get a sense of this is God's ideal for marriage, that it would be a partnership. But the word partner that's used there is the same word that's used over in Psalm 55 for one who is our absolute closest friend with whom we enjoy sweet fellowship. So while the, Bible, the culture of the Bible times was that marriage was really about producing heirs, What the Bible comes in and says, no, the primary purpose of marriage is to glorify God through an intimate partnership and friendship and sweet fellowship and communion. That, In other words, becoming one flesh is much more than just being about sex. Uh, You know, there's also one other thing that's interesting. In Deuteronomy 24, 5, listen to this verse. If a man has recently married... He must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. Do you understand how incredibly radical that is in the culture of the ancient world? To say that the husband is to stay home for his wife's happiness? There's nothing like that. God cares deeply that marriage reflect the inner, inner communion and fellowship that actually is reflected in the Trinity itself. Now, the members of the Trinity have different roles, but they're all equally valuable and important and dignified. And marriage is to reflect that. It, marriage is to be, uh, second we we've, we've read in this passage, a covenant commitment, not a contract with loopholes. You look at verse 31. Paul says, and this actually he's quoting from Genesis. He says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And what you get here is this idea of leaving and cleaving. Leaving one family and coming together 
to become one flesh and form a new family. Leaving and cleaving, you understand, is the language of commitment, not the language of convenience. And, and really, to understand marriage, you need to understand the difference between a contract and a covenant. A contract is something where kind of both people go into it and they negotiate and they each try to get the best possible deal that they can. Marriage was never intended to be that way. Marriage is not where the husband and the wife come together and decide who will do what and we'll sort of figure out, you know, sort of an arrangement where we can each get, you know, the best bang for our buck, so to speak. No, marriage is always actually ordered by the rules that God himself has laid down. And both people come into marriage and submit to it. That's why it says in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Your reverence from Christ is overarching. And then within that, God can tell you, take this particular role. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, give yourself up for your wives as Christ gave himself up for his church. Do you see that? God is saying, I will tell you how you are to live in marriage. It's not a human institution. It's not a contract where you both negotiate the terms. Here's how you live. So, for instance, prenuptial agreements really cut at the heart of what marriage is to be about. Do you understand that? Prenuptial agreements are basically where you go into a marriage with sort of a, a backout plan or a plan for how are we going to end this if it doesn't work out. Now, I think that that's actually not a bad idea for dating relationships. Um, that wouldn't actually be a bad idea for dating relationships, but it's inappropriate for marriage. Marriage is not to be um, sort of based on these sort of prenuptial agreements. And I will warn you, a lot of prenuptial agreements are not actually written down, but they're assumed. A lot of times people go into marriage saying, well, I'm in this, but you know, if he does this or he doesn't do that, then I'm out of here. That's not, that sort of violates the heart of what marriage is about. Marriage is to be a whole-souled commitment. And of course, you may ask, well, that's kind of crazy. Why would I give myself in that way to another sinner? To which I would say, well, that's a very good question. The ultimate, the ultimate thing that I think you need to remember to be able to move forward towards marriage is that your hope and your trust is in God who gave himself up for his bride to make her holy and spotless. In other words, there's nobody that you will marry. There is nobody that you can so perfectly vet that you know that they will never disappoint you or never let you down. The reason that you can move forward in marriage is only because God is a faithful God. I often tell people this when I'm doing weddings, that if you're going to stand up here and give the, say these vows to one another, how can you possibly do that? To say, you know, that I pledge to love you for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. How can you do that not knowing what the next 50 years will bring? And the answer is you either make those vows out of naivete or faith. And what I mean by making them out of faith is to hear that as you make those vows, there is one who has made even more incredible vows to you. That Jesus is the one who has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That I will love you and be with you for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, in good times and bad times. And the vows that Jesus makes are not until death do us part. The vows that Jesus makes were sealed by death, confirmed by death. 
and they can be relied upon. So you move forward in marriage not because you feel adequate, you feel like you have the ability to love in this way, or you feel that you found somebody that can love you in this way. The only way you can move forward is to understand that marriage, marriage is based upon and entered into understanding that God is more faithful than anybody that you will find and pledge yourself to. And that God will even use your husband or your wife's sin to bring you closer to him and to make you more like him. Marriage, whether it's good or bad, can be one of God's best tools for teaching you about his love. Right? And, and it's so important to understand. See, this is why it's so important to understand when Paul is talking about here and he says that marriage, when I'm talking about marriage, I'm really talking about Christ and his church. This idea that marriage is a signpost is vital. It's vital for those who are in bad marriages to know that marriage is not heaven. But it's good for people who are in good marriages to know as well that marriage is not heaven. That it's a signpost that points you to something even greater. So it's a covenant commitment, not a contract with loopholes. It's a signpost. And ultimately, like I've said, but just to emphasize, it's about friendship at its heart. This partnership, this sweet fellowship. It's not about sexual attraction, and then hopefully a good friendship develops out of it. And I think that's what what happens so many times, is that people trying to pursue marriage and find somebody that would be great to marry are, don't think in terms of who can I have a friendship with that will develop over the next 50 years, right? But they think more in terms of, wow, you know, I think she's really hot, and I think we could be friends, you know? <laughs> I think I could figure out how to be her friend, you know? No. See, that's backwards. Backwards. Marriage also, I think, teaches us the gospel and how to deal with our brokenness and our selfishness. Uh, when Wendy and I were engaged to be married, we went to, uh, to a counselor who told Wendy, Wendy, it's your job, your job to help Kevin repent. You're the woman for the job. <laughs> and, and, and the same would be true for me. In other words, when you come together in marriage, what God says is, you've now been called to spend the rest of your life focusing on trying to help one person believe the gospel more. Your job now is to really help uncover this person's fears that make them run away from the goodness of God and help speak gospel truth into their fears in such a way that they will believe it. That you're to use your creativity, you're to use all your best investigative powers to try to figure out how can I speak the gospel truth into this person's life in a way that they'll believe it and how can I live in a way that they'll be more inclined to trust the faithfulness of God rather than being somebody who tries their faith that God is faithful, right? In other words, you go into marriage saying, Lord, help me to be an instrument of your love for this person. I know that my love, even for God, the book of Hosea tells us, God says, your love for me is like the morning mist. And I often tell people, look, if your love for God, who is perfect, is like the morning mist, that as soon as the sun comes up, it's gone, how do you think you're going to sustain love for another person who's going to get on your nerves, who's going to do things differently than you do, who's going to, you know, do things maybe even grievously betray you at times? How are you going to sustain a love for that person? The only way is if God gives you his love for that person. And that's exactly what what God, God tells us in 1 John, that we love because he first loved us. It doesn't say we love God because he first loved us, though that's true. 
It says we love because he first loved us. In other words, we reflect love. We don't generate it. To the degree that you are experiencing the love of God that's been lavished upon us, to that degree you'll be able to love one another and to be kind to them and be merciful with them and even to be strong when you need to be strong toward them. Because if your life is dependent on this other person liking you all the time rather than upon God's love for you, you'll never actually be able to love another person. You'll only be able to worship them or flatter them or manipulate them. The only way you can really serve them is if the love of God is filling your soul and overflowing your soul and you've got love to give. In other words, if your relationship with your spouse is the only thing that you have going on in your life, the only uh, life to your soul, then it will have to bear more weight and more freight than it was designed to bear. Uh, this pastor that, uh, at the church I used to attend and work at, Scotty Smith, used to say that, you know, for a lot of people, marriage is like two ticks on a dog with no dog. People sucking life out of each other. And, you know, for a while, that feels really good. You feel needed. You feel like you've got this, this relationship that's so intimate. But the fact is, if that's what marriage becomes, it ends up breaking under the weight of it. See, this is one of the most important things to understand about Christianity. Christianity says this life is not all you have. Therefore, you don't have to get all your joy out of this life. You can actually sacrifice joy for another, uh, for another because you know that this life is just the beginning. One of the Puritans put it this way. He who knows that he rides to his coronation day doesn't really care if it rains on the way there. Right? If you're on your way to be crowned as king, you don't really mind a little rain. And if you understand what's coming and what's in store, then you realize that I don't have to get my way today. I've got all eternity to be fully satisfied in the love of God and to be fully known and fully know him, to be fully accepted, to gaze upon his beautiful face and have it transform me. I have all eternity to enjoy that. I think I can put myself second today. I don't have to be first today, right? It's vital to understand that. And marriage is one of the things that, that teaches us about that. How does marriage help us deal with our brokenness and our selfishness? Three points on this. The first is, and I, and I always encourage this, don't hide your sin from your spouse. Let your spouse deal with your uncleanness. Don't hide it. Don't defend it. Don't excuse it. I'm certainly not very good at this at all. But I know that there's something powerful about being open and vulnerable before another person and letting them speak the truth of the gospel into your soul. There are few things more powerful than that. And of course, if marriage is really to be about this intimate partnership, one of the reasons that it doesn't end up being what it should be is that we hide our weakness from one another and we don't allow this person that God has raised up to be a tangible expression of his love and his forgiveness. We don't allow them to actually serve that role that God has given them. 
because we hide. We say, I don't really need, you know, yeah, I'm married and I love you, but I don't really need you, right? And marriage ends up not being what it can be. Marriage can serve to teach us about the gospel and deal with our brokenness and our selfishness, but you have to, you have to let your spouse deal with your uncleanness. You also need to remember that your spouse has the ability to recreate your self-image by their words. Whoever said, you know, that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, had no idea what they were talking about. It's one of the stupidest things that little kids are ever told. Words matter a ton. They do. Dan Allender, the Christian counselor, says that really, you know, what goes on in the heart of all of us is what he calls the story war. That there's a particular story that's been told about you and who you are. It's been told to you by your parents. It's been told to you by your friends and your enemies and the culture you live in. This is who you are. This is what matters. But God is narrating a very different story. And, and the real battle is who, whose story will you listen to? Whose story will you listen to? Whose words get to define you? Whose words get to define your hopes and your dreams? Whose words get to assuage your fears? And your spouse's words are so important in this regard. Nothing will destroy you like being shamed and undermined by a spouse. But there are few things more powerful than the encouragement that you can get from somebody who has pledged their whole life to try to understand and work hard at speaking good, affirming words. Not flattering words, but encouraging words into your fear. True words. I I think, you know, one of the things that marriage is designed to teach us is that we are not independent people. That's actually one of the hardest things in being married. It was definitely hard for me. I got married, we were th- I was 33, right? 33, yeah. And I was so used to doing everything on my own, which is a way of saying I was living out of touch with reality, right? I mean, there's different things that God gives us to help us remember this. Um, yeah, I, I think even the simple practice of saying grace. I often talk about, you know, Bart Simpson's prayer from the, one time in the Simpsons. He says, Lord, we pay for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing, and I think so often we live that way. We feel like, you know, I worked for this. I, you know, I earned it. You know, I studied hard. I deserve this. I practiced hard, so I deserve this. We feel so little dependence upon God unless huge trials come or we get sick or, you know, something really devastating happens and then we, you know, cry out to God. But for the most part, we really live as pretty independent people. And when I got married, see, I could say, you know, now... Wendy is sort of like keeping me from doing all the things that I wanted to do because now I have to call her and say, hey, can I do this? Or I could say, I could welcome Wendy and say, wow, she's actually, God has put her into my life to help me get in touch with what has always been true, but what I refuse to admit, which is I'm never independent, that I never make decisions on my own that don't affect other people. And I can kind of get away with that, thinking that that's true, but marriage really makes it difficult to live in that illusion. In a, in a lot of ways, you know, for me, for years and years and years, I basically had decided that I wasn't going to get close to anybody, but then I was going to surround myself with people who would help me 
not really live the consequences of that. In other words, I, I, I would always have roommates so that I'd have friends to hang out with, but I wasn't intimate with anybody, right? And eventually somebody really challenged me on that, and I decided that if I was going to decide to not move towards anybody in real intimacy, that I should probably live the consequences of that. So I finally decided to live on my own. And I got married, what, six months later? <laughs> right? There's something, there's something about this. We are made dependent beings. It's one of the heart sins that is the most difficult to root out of our heart is the idea that we're created to be dependent upon God for all things. And other, it gets so twisted, like so often in Christian circles, even things that are supposed to make you more dependent, like reading your Bible and praying, we end up using those as things where we try and get more and more disciplined so we don't really need God anymore. Like even spiritual disciplines get turned upside down that way. So many Christians think the goal of the Christian life is to be so good at all your Christian disciplines that you don't need God anymore, which is exactly sort of the opposite. John Newton, the hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace, and he wrote um, How Sweet the Name Jesus Sounds and Glorious Things of the Earth Spoken, a bunch of wonderful hymns. Um, he has some letters that he, that he wrote. He was a masterful letter writer. People would write him asking questions, and he would send these letters of spiritual counsel. And one of these letters, he talks about why is it that God still leaves sin in our heart when we get converted. He says, you know, when God made us Christians, he could have taken away all of our sin out of our heart. He justified us. He made us righteous in his sight, but yet we still struggle with sin. Why didn't he just wipe all that out? And, and he kind of surveys some various possible answers to that. But what he finally concludes is that the reason that God leaves sin in your heart is because the deepest sin of all is your self-sufficiency. And one of his greatest tools for breaking you of your self-sufficiency is your struggle with sin. In other words, you know, he, the letter is actually entitled Advantages from Remaining Sin. But the only way you can understand what he's saying is if you understand what you were made for was to depend upon God. This is what God teaches actually in Deuteronomy there's a place where kind of Moses looks back over all the wanderings of Israel in the desert. And he says, look, here's, the whole, here's what this is all about. It's in Deuteronomy 8. He says that this was all about teaching you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you remember Jesus in the desert is tempted. And you remember he quotes that very scripture. This is, vital. This is what God made you for, to be dependent upon him. But we fight it. Marriage is one of his great tools to teach you about that. And then finally, I, I want to talk about this last point. Marriage is about joining together in covenant to advance the kingdom of God in the world. If you're going to get married, it needs to be because you're convinced that you and your spouse will be a better force for the kingdom of God married than you would be on your own. And that means there's three aspects to this. Leaving, cleaving, and weaving. The first is leaving. The couple is to start a new family, cut the bond, and the dependence on the parents in a decisive way. Now, again, we can talk more about questions, particulars about this, but the idea is, you know, when you come into marriage, it's vital that you leave. And there's two ways that people often fail to leave. One, they basically say, well, the way my parents did it, that's the way we need to do it. That's one way to fail to leave. The other way is to say, the way my parents did it, we're not going to do it like that no matter what. That can also be a failure to leave. You're still connected to your family. Now, tradition can be a helpful thing. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. But 
leaving first and foremost means you're starting a new family unit and you need to decide how are we going to do things before God in this new family. Again, look to the traditions that both of you come from. Um, weigh them. Think about them. But the only authority in your marriage is God and his word. So leaving is, is vital. It's important. Um, th- second, cleaving means that you're to bond with your spouse in a strong, loving commitment. It means that you should have no relationship, no relationship with the opposite, somebody of the opposite sex that's more intimate than your wife. Now, this is an interesting thing because sometimes I, I've had couples that were getting married that were like, you know, this person is really like my best friend, but I'm marrying this person. It's like, no, no. If marriage is to be about this sweet partnership and this intimate relationship, that's inappropriate. One of the things that that means is if you're dating somebody now and you really think they're your best friend and you're not going to marry them, they're not going to be your best friend. You, you just need to understand that it would be inappropriate for them to continue to be your best friend when either they or you get married. Because this cleaving means you're to cleave to this person above all others. Yes, you're to serve and to love other people of the opposite sex within the body of Christ, without a doubt. But you're to cleave to this one. Another thing that this means is that children should never become a more important relationship. The father-mother to their children relationship is secondary to the relationship of husband and wife. And that often gets, gets screwed up in, in relationships. It's why so many parents divorce when their kids go off to college. You know this, right? So many, so many parents, when the last kid goes off to college, they realize that for the last 15 years, their relationship really has been about a partnership of raising children, but they've not been cleaving together. Par- parents raise up children so that they can leave. But marriage relationship is primary, and it is one that should be for life. So understand that. Now, again, we can ask more questions about that. But your relationship with your children is always secondary to your relationship with your spouse. Third, weaving. I like this one. This image of Adam and Eve are given a calling to work the garden, to till the garden together. So leaving, cleaving, and weaving. And there's this great song that I love. I don't know if y'all are David Wilcox fans. I don't know if he's real popular anymore. But when I was thinking about getting married, and I was kind of stuck between the goodness of singleness and the advantages of singleness and the potential advantages of marriage, this song actually really helped me. It's uh, called The Block Dog. Anybody know this song? No? Let me read you these lines. Um, uh, I'll close with this. David Wilcox says this, I had a long talk with the block dog. All summer he runs with the kids. He's happy as a block dog. Every day the choice is his. Because they all feed him when he's hungry. They all keep him from the cold. But he don't wear their collar. He makes the neighborhood his home. There'll be a fireplace in the winter. There's lots of houses down this street. Summertime he'll catch your frisbee and beg the best of your dinner meat. I had a long talk with the block dog. All summer he runs with the kids. He's happy as a block dog. Every day the choice is his. I said, Rusty, I'm getting married. I used to like your kind of life, but life's different now. It's like a garden. I'd like to tend it with my wife. Dig in one spot. Make a straight row. You're only digging to hide the bone. But when I lived so free alone, I had an empty harvest. 
I had a long talk with the block dog. All summer he runs with the kids. He's happy as a block dog. Every day the choice is his. Rusty looked up, sad at me, and said, Dave, I understand, because we're different now. I'm still a dog, and you're acting like a man. I had a long talk with the block dog. All summer he runs with the kids. He's happy as a block dog. Every choice, every day the choice is his. I like that. I love that image that I want to dig in one spot and make a straight row like a garden. I want to tend it with my wife. When I lived so free alone, I had an empty harvest. One of the greatest difficulties in marriage is we just believe that the way to, the way to, to live is to live free and to be able to free, be free to do what you want. But, you know, didn't Jesus say that he who loses his life will find it? I think that there's vast wisdom there in thinking about marriage. Yes, to commit to one person, to leave and to cleave and to weave, is to cut off lots of options. But you know what? The life of faith is about cutting off options. Martin Luther described the life of faith as a living, daring hope. It's not sort of leaving your options open. It's saying, this is the way. I'm going to walk in it. So I encourage you. God is faithful. I don't know what he will call you to, but I pray that you would consider marriage. Jesus certainly commends it. God commends it. And, um, well, it's not easy, but it's uh, one of his greatest tools for teaching about his love. So let me pray for us.